At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. Hey, it's Kristen. To give our team a little break over the holidays, we are revisiting some of our favorite episodes from 2021. Last week, it was our team's favorite episode, and this week, it's yours. And by yours, I mean the royal you. This was the most popular episode of the year by far, about the one recipe that Alice Waters has said that she can't live without, a simple cardamom cake from her friend, Nilifer Ichaporia King. I hope you enjoy hearing more of the story from Nilifer herself in this episode. And I think that baking this cake and filling my home with the soothing smells of cardamom and butter and toasted almond will be a bomb. I hope that it can be that for you too. Have a safe, happy new year, and I will talk to you next week. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For almost a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves, and we get to hear from you. This week, I had the fortune of talking with Nilifer Ichaporia King, the author of My Bombay Kitchen, traditional and modern Parsi home cooking, a timeless book that won her a James Beard Award in 2008. Now, I've already written about Nilifer's Parsi burgers in Genius Recipes, which, inspired by Parsi kebabs, fix the chronic disappointment that is the turkey burger by stuffing it so full of chilies and onions and cilantro that it could not possibly dry out. But each time I talk to Nilifer, she has a way of humbly, elegantly pointing me to the next gem that I should uncover in her cookbook. This time, it was for a simply named cardamom cake. And only after making and falling for it myself, and hooking everyone in delivery distance on its charms, I learned that Alice Waters has said that this cake is the one recipe she can't live without. Not the one cake recipe she can't live without. The one recipe. Full stop. And that recipe, along with the video that shows you how simply the cake comes together, are all on Food52 today. And you'll notice in each of them that Nilifer shares the credit for the cake with Roundhill Longlet, a textile artist friend of hers. Although Nilifer has morphed the shape of the cake over the years and added a memorable crackly almond topping. Before this interview, Nilifer asked me that we talk about crediting sources and recipes when you know them, a theme that will sound familiar if you've listened to our recent episode with Prithi Mystery, and something that, as someone who makes a living spotlighting the work of others, really resonated with me. So let's start there. The dreamy, at this point, almost otherworldly sounding place that Nilifer first encountered this cake. Oh. And by the way, 
On the day we recorded, Mercury must have been in retrograde and we could not get the audio to totally fall in line, which I think only adds to the feeling of traveling far away from 2021 in a very good way. Nilifer, this cake struck me in part because I don't remember ever seeing whole bruised cardamom seeds in a cake before or maybe in any recipe. So could you just tell us the story of how you first encountered this cake? Uh, it was a Berkeley backyard wedding party. And I think it was 1987. And this very unassuming cake was being passed around and I took one mouthful and my jaw dropped and <laughs> everything changed. It was one of those uh, extraordinary moments in my tasting life. It was wonderful. Mm. And um, I asked the person who'd made it if she could give me the recipe and she said, yes, of course, here, I call it my modular cake. And I wrote down whatever mm. she said and she said, you can increase the uh, size of the cake by um, going up in thirds for all of the uh, ingredients. And indeed, you can. Um, the person who gave this to me was very beautiful, tall, beautiful Swedish woman, uh, Ranghild Langlet, um, who's a textile artist. Um, and I must say, that cake was a life changer. It's become everyone's favorite. You said it was a potluck wedding celebration, right? Did you also bring something to that? Yes, that's a guess. <laughs> How could I remember anything when there was this vivid cake to anchor that in my memory? <laughs> and how has this cake evolved over the years since 1987 with you? Um, not, it hasn't evolved at all, actually. I mean, the original is so perfect. There's no need to change it. All I added was the crunchy topping. Well, I I do think that that has taken an unassuming cake to being very glamorous, though, I have to say. Changing it from a loaf pan to a, a wider, shallower pan and then adding that crunchy topping to really like show, show that topping and, and get it very crisp. Uh, I, I feel like you've added a lot of your own flair to what was already a really spectacular oh. recipe. Well, that's kind. So it is a cake that looks quite fancy, uh, which often implies something very precious. But this cake seems to be very resilient. Do you, do you agree? Um, I think so, because there are times when I've done really stupid things, like beating out the butter. <laughs> um, and then I pulled it out very quickly and stirred in the butter and hoped for the best. And it's worked. You know, it hasn't been as spectacular as, the, uh, as if the butter had gone in right from the start. Uh, but it has worked. And once I left out the sugar, and didn't know until the cake was there, So. Oh, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> but the one without sugar, was were you able to eat it? No. <laughs> it wasn't very good. All right, so some ingredients may be essential. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us more about who Parsis are and their history? Well, I, I'll give the short version. Sure. Um, the, um, Zoroastrianism was the uh, state religion of ancient Persia, um, and it continued into 
the um, fifth, sixth century, and then the um, Muslim invasion from Arabia uh, forced people to either convert or to flee. And I guess the people who decided to stay on um, or convert became either a, a absorbed into the Muslim, new Muslim population, or remained as an oppressed minority. And the people who fled made their way down the Arabian Peninsula to a port, Hormuz, uh, I think, and from there went in boats to the west coast of India, which wasn't just sort of a random choice because there had been trade with India all along. Mm. Um, landed on the coast of Gujarat, and there's an apocryphal story about how the ruler there um, called the priests who were in charge of the group to um, justify their uh, being welcomed, and the story is that they dropped some sugar into milk and said that that's how they, how, that's how they, we would be, uh, just absorbed without displacing. And so mm -hmm. we were allowed to stay. And um, there we were, that was around the 10th century. Nobody has a firm date if they do the line. Um, and there we stayed in Gujarat. Um, and when Bombay was uh, started as a city in the 17th, 16th, 17th century, they're growing along there. Um, Parsis came to Gujarat, and because we could um, communicate easily with factions that didn't communicate with each other, such as the Hindus and the Muslims, um, were very useful in facilitating all sorts of things, you know, trade and professions. And, um, became a very important part of the growth of Bombay. Now, you've said before that this cardamom cake is honorary Parsi. What, what do you think makes it so? Cardamom? <laughs> Quite simply, that. So had you ever seen the whole bruised cardamom seeds not ground up in any sweets before this cake? I think they're sometimes used that way in India. It's, it was such a surprise, actually, to know that cardamom was used anywhere in European cooking. I thought it was just something that, you know, Indians and Middle Eastern people used. I had no idea that it figured in, say, Swedish cooking. And I found out recently that Sweden had its own East India Trading Company um, that started in the 1700s. Oh. And, um, and it wasn't a political arm of the government as it was with the Dutch and the English, but... Uh, no, just for trading. So I guess that's how cardamom got disseminated through Scandinavia, too. And it seems to really have, have stuck in all of these places as well. I guess so. What are some ways that you keep Parsi cooking alive now in your home? Oh, I just um, cook Parsi food when the, when the mood strikes me. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, Parsis are crazy about eggs. Uh, we don't eat them that often, but I certainly enjoy them when we do. Um, you know, Parsi scrambled eggs, for instance, or puri, 
or parsley omelets, eggs on uh, eggs perched on all sorts of things like a uh, a tomato puree or eggs on spinach or eggs on eggs on potato chips. Everyone thinks that's a joke, but it's really very delicious. <laughs> hey, it's Kristen. If you're enjoying this conversation with Nilifer and want to hear more of the stories behind iconic recipes like this, just click that subscribe button and you will. After the break, Nilifer tells us about the feast that she plans every year at Chez Panisse for the Parsi New Year, which would have just happened were it not for the pandemic, and hopefully will again soon. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hardworking hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. We should probably talk about Parsi New Year because this is the time of year that you would usually be hosting um, a big feast at Chez Panisse. Oh, sure. You know, um, in India, um, while this day, Jamshedi Navroz, is acknowledged and celebrated with little chalk patterns on either side of the door and garlands, um, we don't make a huge thing of it. There's a little division in the Parsi community as to you know, one segment celebrates New Year at, uh, on March the 21st. And most Parsis um, celebrate New Year in August or September. You know, it's a moving day. And I never know uh, what the day is until I get my first uh, greetings. <laughs> So I can remember March the 21st, and it means a lot in a temperate climate to have something associated with spring. So that's the one I celebrate, although my mother and father didn't uh, really do anything more than acknowledge it. So when was it that you did get more into celebrating it? Oh, uh, when I came to the United States. And um, not so much during my first mm. marriage, but... Uh, after I came to Berkeley, and uh, I celebrated it every day, every mm-hmm. year. <laughs> I had a tiny studio apartment, and we just filled it with people uh, on March the 21st. And then um, around the mid-80s, um, I became friendly with Alice Waters, and she and others came to the house for um uh, annual one, because by that time I was living with my husband. We weren't married then. And so we started having people over to San Francisco and just had vast, a vast platter of biryani and let people wander around the house. And Alice uh, 
said, well, let's do this at the restaurant. And I thought, no, no, this is my, my personal thing. And then eventually she persuaded me to do it because she has a knack for being persuasive. <laughs> and, um, and now I see it as a family event because uh, people keep coming year after year to shape her niece. And I um, know I don't feel I'm missing a family occasion at all. So I don't know when our next one will be. Maybe this August. Maybe this August. Who knows? <laughs> would feel very fitting with the new year. Yes, it would. Uh, one advantage of uh, doing it in August is that there's so much more in terms of uh, tropical vegetables than, than there is in March. Than there are in March, rather. Um, you, know, you have tomatoes, of course, um, not particularly tropical, but eggplants and uh, the various gourds like bottle gourd, ridge gourd, etc. Um, you know, things that we use uh, in India that are a little harder to find in March in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Is it particularly meaningful to see, you know, dishes or flavors from your childhood or from from other parts of your life kind of come to fruition in these menus? It's so gratifying. Yes, you're, um, you're right. And it's always nice when Parsis keep coming, too. Um, mm -hmm. Now, um, I always get a little fidgety when um, I see Parsi names on the list thinking, oh, my God. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff isn't exactly as you would have in Bombay. Are they going to be very disappointed or will they be excited? Well, the ones with imagination mm -hmm. are excited. And I think the ones who expect something they don't get maybe don't come again. Mm. What are you most looking forward to doing as the pandemic is subsiding? Oh, seeing friends, of course. I don't even need to think about that one. <laughs> yes, I haven't seen my pals for a long time, except for brief doorstep visits or um, sitting on the back steps mm -hmm. um, or down near the garden. But you know, it's all been so constrained. Mm -hmm. um, but it'll be lovely to see other vaccinees now without our masks on. That is very hopeful. Yes, I can't wait. Now, my uh, two weeks after the last mm -hmm. shot ends on March the 11th, <laughs> and I will be like a cork out of a bottle. What about you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I really want to see my brother. He's back in New York. Um, and he was really the the closest person to us um, when my daughter was born. He was really our only family around. And so it was really hard to say goodbye to him when we moved to California. Uh, we still FaceTime all the time. But um, I think that's probably what I'm most looking forward to is getting the chance for him to come and see how much our daughter's grown in the mm -hmm. last, I don't know, six or eight months since he's seen her. Lovely. Hmm. Well, it may not be that far off now. And now, here are more of our listeners' memorable recipes starring cardamom. Hello, I'm Numra, head chef and owner of Empress Market in London. I seek creative ways to explore my British Pakistani identity through the food that I cook. Cardamom is one of my favourite spices, a floral aroma that can lift the simplest dish. 
It takes center stage in Kheer, a Pakistani rice dessert. The scent of simmering cardamom infused milk wafts through the home and sparks memories of festivities. It marks the anticipation and excitement of family and friends coming together and enjoying this sweet dessert. My name is Vlada and I come from a small island in the Mediterranean that's called Cyprus. On the Greek side of uh, the small island, it's a tradition uh, to cook or buy this type of braided bread that's called sureki. The braid would normally represent the Holy Trinity. And me and my mother, every midnight after the serve, um, would go out of church and go and buy this bread in bulks and eat it every morning together with eggs and it would be so fluffy and soft and delicious and it's so good with coffee. I really hope that you'll like it too. My name is Neelafar Kayahani. I'm a college student and home cook from Northern California. Growing up, my mother taught me how to cook recipes she learned living in Afghanistan. One of my favorite dishes is known as shir parare, a simple milk fudge that my mom usually made with cream, sugar, and cardamom. You keep it on a low flame, constantly stirring until it's thick and can hold its shape. I still remember the first time my mom taught me how to check if the fudge was ready. We would drop a little spoonful on a cold plate or an ice cube and it would start to harden. As a kid, I was fascinated. Desserts like this one really helped me learn that in cooking, a simple flavor like cardamom can really go a long way. Thanks for listening. Our show is put together by Coral Lee with support from Emily Hanhan. If you have a genius recipe from a cookbook from 2021 or 2007 or 1947, I would always love to hear from you at geniusatfood52.com. And if you like the Genius Recipe Tapes, take a sec to rate and review or even just subscribe if you haven't yet. It really does help us out. Thank you. Talk to you soon.